God's righteous displeasure and through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ obtain his pardon and his forgiveness. George Washington added four words to his inauguration ceremony when he said, so help me God. And the very first thing he did after being inaugurated was bend down and kiss his Bible. It was John Adams, our second president of the United States, who said, our constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. For democracy to work, the majority of the people have to be religious and moral at their core, or it falls apart. On February 11th, 1861, Abraham Lincoln said, in regard to this book, and he held up his Bible, I have but to say that it is the best gift that God has given to man. All the good the Savior gave to the world was communicated to us through this book. In 1909, President Theodore Roosevelt said, after a week of perplexing problems, it does so rest my soul to come into the house of the Lord and to sing and to mean it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. My great joy and great glory in occupying this exalted position as president of the nation is that I am enabled to preach the practical moralities of the Bible to my fellow countrymen and to hold up Christ as the hope and savior of the world, end quote. All of which leads to a couple profound questions. First of all, what happened? <laughs> and secondly, how do we fix it? Thanks for being here today. Welcome, happy Independence Day to you. I'm grateful that you're here. For those of you joining us in the room, thanks for coming. For those of you watching online, <laughs> Brett, Florida with shorts. Um, it's great. <laughs> uh, no, we're, we're grateful uh, that, uh, that you're joining us online. Thanks for doing that. Um, it was on this day, 245 years ago today, that the Second Continental Congress unanimously adopted the Declaration of Independence announcing the colony's separation from Great Britain, and in the words of Abraham Lincoln, brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. That said, it seems that as a nation we have strayed a bit from the attitude of those times. And we have not yet completely lived up to the high ideals expressed in our founding documents. But there is still a sense held by many that the United States of America holds a divinely appointed and unique place in the world. Recently, the Barna Group released some research that showed a slight uptick among self-identified Christians who were more likely than all U.S. adults to view America as historically Christian, blessed, and chosen by God. Which is weird, considering that as a nation we seem to be moving, moving, moving further away from him. How do you explain this apparent discrepancy? On this Independence Day, when our thoughts naturally turn to national life, I think it's important that we deal with this disconnect. How is it that Christians have shown an uptick in believing that God is somehow using America in a special way, and yet our culture seems to be moving further away from him. How does this work? I think we ought to talk about that. There's a verse buried in 2 Chronicles that provides an answer to that problem. 
But it is not an insert tab A into slot A kind of answer. We're going to talk about that today. Open your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, starting in verse 11. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, starting in verse 11. While you're turning there, let me give you a little background on the text. This passage follows right on the heels of King Solomon's prayer of dedication when he finished the temple uh, somewhere around 959 B.C. We learn from the parallel passages in 1 Kings 7 and 1 Kings 9 that there's actually a 13-year gap between Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 6 and 1 Chronicles 7. There's actually a significant gap of time there. The beginning of chapter 7 kind of starts with this summary statement about what has happened, but there's, there's a pretty significant gap. And the reason that the chronicler, and we don't know who wrote this book, it might have been the, the priest Ezra in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, possibly. We, we really don't know. They didn't sign it. They didn't, you know, we don't know exactly who wrote it, who compiled it. It had to have been later because this is, I mean, they, they talk about the entire reign of all the different kings. So this, it's written significantly after these events happened, okay? Um, it, it, the reason, though, that they don't talk about the gap in Chronicles is that the writer here in chapter 7 is going to pick up on some language from Solomon's prayer of dedication that was in chapter 6. See, in the previous chapter, Solomon clearly acknowledges that God is too great, too mighty, too vast to live in a temple made by human hands. And so he, in his prayer, in acknowledging that, he asks God to, quote, hear from heaven eight times. Eight times down through that chapter, the writer of Chronicles asks God to hear from heaven. And so our ears, even though there's a 13-year gap between chapter 6 and chapter 7, our ears are primed to pick up on that phrase, hear from heaven. You look for it as we read the text together this morning. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, starting in verse 11. When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all that he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people. Now you probably know this verse. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will, ah, there it is, hear from heaven. And I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully as David, your father did, <laughs> not a super high bar there, um, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David, your father, when I said you shall never fail to have a successor to rule over Israel. But if you turn away, and forsake the decrees and commands I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them. Then I will uproot Israel from my land, which I have given them 
And I will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. Notice God invites the nation in on this covenantal text. This temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by it will be appalled and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer, because they have forsaken the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why he brought all this disaster on them. So what do we learn from this passage on this Independence Day here in America in the 21st century? I mean, we know that our country needs healing. We can't help but wonder if some of the troubles we've experienced over the last few decades are because, like Israel, the, the, the majority of us have turned away and forsaken the decrees and commands that God has given us. We fervently, as the church, pray that our country might experience a revival of Christian faith in our land. And so is this verse in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, a prescription to fix all our problems and, and heal our land? Yes, but not in the same way it was for Israel. If you want to heal a nation, there are two steps in the treatment plan. Here's the first one. You got to talk to the right doctor. You ever been at the doctor's office and they're telling you the treatment plan? And, and you know that, I mean, they've got a DR in front of their name and you don't, but you're sitting there in the back of your head going, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> like, I, I'm, you know, and okay, okay, okay. You walk out the door and the thought in your head is second opinion, right? We are talking to somebody else. This does not sound right to me. When it comes to understanding what this powerful scripture means for our country, I, we need to make sure we're talking to the right doctor here. All right, And what that means is spending some time talking about hermeneutics. The big fancy Greek word it comes from the Greek word hermeneuo, which means I interpret. Okay, Hermeneutics is the science and study of biblical interpretation. It's, it's the study of the principles upon which the biblical text is to be understood and the interpretation of the text in such a way that its original meaning comes home to the reader or the listener. And I think we need to deal with this this morning, okay? And, and so we're going to talk for a little bit before we get into the specifics of this passage about two rules for biblical interpretation. There are two ironclad rules of biblical interpretation, all right? Now there's a third one. It's kind of an aluminum clad one <laughs> where you have to think about the genre of, of scripture. But there are two ironclad rules of biblical interpretation. And I want to give you the rule and the application, so there's a rule and an application, these two things, all right? Here's the first one, number one. You have to find the aim, the aim, the author's intended meaning. <laughs> How many of you have ever been in a Bible study and somebody said, what's this mean to you? I have a hard time not wanting to punch the person who says that. In Jesus' name, in Christian love. But like, I don't care what it means to you. Big deal. What did Ezra mean when he wrote it? That's really what matters here. Because, because we believe in the doctrine of inspiration, right? That the Holy Spirit inspired scripture. He didn't inspire your interpretation of it. He inspired the author. So let's figure out what the author meant. The first ironclad rule of biblical interpretation is you need to find the aim. What is the author's intended meaning? Which means this had to have meant something to the original audience. 
Now, sometimes it can have a special meaning for us too. The ultimate example of this is Isaiah 7, right? Isaiah goes to King Ahaz and says, this will be a sign to you. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and you shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we know, oh, that's a, that's a prophecy about Jesus. It is. And it's kind of a dual layer fulfillment prophecy. Because in Isaiah 7, it says, this will be a sign to you, King Ahaz. It had to have meant something to him. And then you read the rest of the chapter, and Isaiah says, so I went home, and I went to the prophetess, and she conceived, and we had a son, and we named him Meher Shalel Hashbaz. You have to practice to say that name correctly. You know, and it, so there's this idea. They, it has to have had some meaning in its original context. And so here, we can't just go, we can't just pluck Second Chronicles 7.14 out of its context and go, this is about America. Hang on. Consider the aim. It's the author's intended meaning. No, this is originally written to Israel, okay? And, and the application of this, this second rule, sorry, we lost that screen. We don't know what happened. Bad wire, power, no idea. Um, we just came in this morning, didn't work. I'm convinced that, that if Jesus were here in the flesh today, when he goes to exercise demons, he would start at sound equipment in churches. Um, anyway, it's up here. So the application of this rule is this. A text cannot now mean what it never meant. A text cannot mean today what it never meant originally. You have to go there first. What did it originally mean? What's the author's intended meaning? That matters. It's important, okay? And because of this rule, because of this application, you cannot say that 2 Chronicles 7.14 is primarily about the USA. It is originally and primarily about the nation of Israel in the 10th century BC. Now, we can learn something from it, and there are applications, and we'll talk about it. So if I'm ticking you off, just please be patient. You have to love me. Jesus said so. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Do you have any idea how often that gets quoted in our house? Um, here's the second ironclad rule. Number two, context is king. Context is king. All right. To really understand what a biblical author is saying, you have to have some kind of grasp of the historical and cultural context that it was given in. A good study Bible will help you, especially if it, if it deals with apologetics or archaeology. Those are good helps. Um, there are other great resources out there. The IVP Bible background commentary for the Old and New Testament are great resources too. Um, you can do a lot to help yourself with this just by reading large chunks of Scripture. Just, just, you know, if you'll permit me to quote Saturday Night Live from the 70s, you know, in the Coneheads, consume mass quantities, right? Like, you take in a lot of it, and, and you'll begin to get a feel for this. That's part of the why I didn't read just that verse. That's why I gave you what, what chapter 6 is about. And I would encourage you to go home and read it yourself. It's a beautiful prayer. The first half of chapter 7, it all kind of leads up to this. You, you've got to take in bigger part. Context is king in understanding Scripture. And part of the understanding of context is realizing that you, in the 21st century America, are not the original audience for this. And that leads to the application of this second rule. Even if it's not always God's word to you, it is always God's word for you. Even if it's not always God's word to you, it is always God's word for you. Now, there are some times it is absolutely God's word to you. When Jesus said, love your neighbor, that is God's word to you. A, he's talking to his disciples, so the context fits, right? You're a disciple of Jesus. That means it's, a, it's to you. But there are other times when Jesus, you know, like, 
say, well, all of God's word is equally authoritative. Really? How many of you are wearing a cotton poly blend right now? Uh uh uh, Leviticus 19, you better not do that. By the way, the verse about tattoos is nine verses later. So, you people who are like, tattoos are wrong, do you wear a cotton poly blend? (laughs) Same chapter. And we, we instinctively, we know this, right? That even if it's God's word to, to you, it's not God's word to you. It is always God's word for you. This is authoritative. When that, whenever, what that means is that when this book speaks, it speaks with authority. We need to understand the context. The text is always personally authoritative, but it may not be always specifically applicable every time. You've got to consider the historical context in which a particular scripture was given and the grammatical and literary context in which you have received it. Let me show you some examples. I saw a billboard, a picture of a billboard recently. You see this? I keep doing that. So I, I saw this. I thought, here's, this is about 2 Chronicles 7.14, right? He'll, he will heal our land. And, they, you know, Jesus saves, and they made USA right in the middle, right? So... Again, what's the author's intended meaning? What is he trying to communicate, or she? Is, is the intended meaning that when the United States en masse turns to Jesus in submission and surrender to his lordship, that he will heal this country? Is that what they mean? Then yes, absolutely. I want my picture next to that sign. All right? <laughs> Have you seen this? I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. You know? Now, go, if you guys go back to the, the, Robert, would you go back to the billboard? So if, if what they mean is that by, by turning to Jesus, he'll heal us, fine. But if what they're saying is that some kind of, just because we're America, God loves us better than every other country, some kind of Christian nationalism, some warped version of Christianity, then, then no, I want to take that thing down. And I used to work for that company, Lamar, and I know how to do it. So no. Again, what is the author intending to communicate? I would want to know. All right, go to the, so you saw that next one, right? I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. Here's a great, um, say, what do you mean by that? Well, let me show you this cartoon. Look at this. So he's standing, bro, what are you doing? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All right? So in the name of Jesus, I'm going to jump off this building and fly like a bird. Dude, hold on. That's not really, and next. I can do all things except read Bible verses in their proper context. All right. So how does this apply to our text today? J. Barton Payne, in his volume in the Expositor's Bible Commentary, wrote about 2 Chronicles 7.14, quote, The sentence, as it continues, forms what is probably the best known and most loved verse in all Chronicles. It expresses, as does no other passage in the Bible, the stipulations that God lays down for a nation to experience his blessing, whether that nation be Solomon's or Ezra's or our own. Those who have been chosen to be his people must cease from their sins, turn from living lives of proud self-centeredness, pray to the Lord and yield their desires to his word and his will. Then and only then will he grant heaven-sent revival. That interpretive framework has been kind of the standard evangelical understanding of this verse for a long time. So here's my question. Should this verse in 2 Chronicles 7.14 be viewed as an absolute promise and prophetic word to any nation who has some number of the Lord's people in it? If so, where is the line where it kicks in? Are you uncomfortable yet? 
I promise it'll get better. Just hang with me. Please be patient. You have to love me. Remember, you have to. Where's the line? Fact. It has been almost 150 years since we have experienced a large-scale national revival. Second Great Awakening. Early, mid-1800s. So has the church in the United States just not been humbling ourselves and praying and seeking God and repenting enough for this promise to kick in for 150 years? I mean, if you know that if the answer to that question is, well, apparently not, we are in a world of hurt. I mean, if you're, because there, you need to understand there's kind of a, if you do this, I'll do that element in the text. So if this is just directly written to us in the 21st century America, in the same way that it meant for Israel, we're in a bad way. Or maybe, just maybe, we're not talking to the right doctor. Maybe this verse doesn't apply to us exactly like it applied to Israel in the ninth century before Christ. See, my chief concern is that we would treat this verse like some kind of recipe for success, like some kind of prescription from the doctor for some wonder drug, rather than a set of values to embrace. I want you to understand me here. My motivation for this is pastoral. I don't want you to have a crisis of faith. Because I've sat in my office too many times over the last 20 plus years with someone who took something from the Bible as an as a, a, a absolute promise from God. And when it didn't work out that way, they were broken in their soul. And they're like, I don't know if I believe anymore. I don't want to have to help prevent your Christian deconstruction. I want to help you understand this from a pastoral level. When you treat a verse like this, like some kind of recipe or some kind of prescription for a spiritual wonder drug, you can create a crisis of faith for yourself when it doesn't turn out the way it should. I don't want that for you. I want our country to be healed as much as the next guy. And I know I make some of you uncomfortable when I, when I talk this way and, and I stand in critique of our country. And I want you to hear where I'm coming from on this, okay? Here's the best analogy I can come up with. When your kids do something wrong, your grandkids do something wrong. Do you correct them? If you love them. I love my country. I love this country. And because of that, I'm not afraid as a father to say, that's out of line. Because I love my kids. And when they step out of line, I correct them too. It's done from love. I want our country to be healed as much as the next guy, but please do not treat this verse like some kind of magical totem or, or, or some kind of thing that will force God into healing our land once enough of us get our act together. Talking to the right doctor means viewing this not as a promise or a prophecy, but as a set of values to live out. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. That's, you've got, that's the second thing. You've got to apply the right treatment here. I do believe that this passage provides a treatment plan for a country, but not in the same way that it did for Israel. For Israel, there was a one-to-one -one correlation. God tells Solomon, you do this, I do that. You do that, I'll do this. You know, that the same thing doesn't necessarily apply to us. For us, it's different. This is seen very clearly in God's use of the word chosen in this passage. God says that he has chosen the temple as a place for sacrifices. And the Hebrew text there emphasizes the word chosen in the verb tense that, that the author chose to use. 
He'll do it again in verse 16. Now that term chosen is loaded with theological freight to the Hebrew mind, most notably the election of Israel as God's vehicle to bring his rule, and we now understand later his salvation through Jesus our Messiah, to all the nations of the earth. That chosenness does not apply to the USA in the 21st century. And I, I, please, I want you to hear me clearly. I'm not saying that God hasn't used America. He absolutely has. He's used America to pull the world back from the brink of self-destruction and or totalitarian dictatorship multiple times. He has used America to lift hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. Do you know this? I just read this this week, that the average citizen in America, their net worth is 30 times greater than it was in 1776. 30 times. You, average Joe Americans, are worth 30 times more than your predecessors 245 years ago. God has used this country to bless the world in incredible ways. He has used this country to improve the standard of living literally for billions of people around the world. And he has used this country to promote and fund the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the translation of God's word to every country on the planet. But we're not chosen in the same way or in the same sense that Israel was 10 centuries before Jesus. Now this might make a strong statement to American Christians, but it is one of values, not validation. Now there are four values that we need to embrace to form the foundation of this treatment plan given to Israel. And while this is, text is not God's word specifically to us, it is very much God's word personally for us. And to that end, it is authoritative and we neglect them at our peril. We need to practice these values. And as we do, I believe it will eventually lead to national revival. But please understand, this treatment plan is neither civic nor transactional in nature. Rather, it is essentially a plan to reignite the spiritual fervor of God's people so that they go make more disciples so that America becomes more Christian because they're just, well, more Christians, and that will heal this land. So how do we do it? Four values. Here's the first one, number one, humility. Humility. The idea behind this word in the Hebrew text is one of bending. And generally the idea is that you're bending to bow in submission or surrender. And when the church in America learns to bend both our corporate and personal desires and preferences to those of Jesus, revival and healing will come. Can I suggest to you that maybe one reason our culture's in the shape it's in is because of consumer Christianity? It says, well, I didn't get it my way. Well, this ain't Burger King, dude. It's the kingdom of God. And I think that what's required from the American church is a sense of bending and lowering of self and humility before an almighty God that just says, God, I just wanna be your vessel. Help me get out of the way. We need to pray what Jesus prayed in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. That humility is what's required of the American church. The second value is prayer. Now the form of the word 
for prayer that the chronicler used here is most frequently used in the context of intercessory prayer, praying for other people. And I think the value is not just the spiritual practice of prayer, which has value at all times everywhere, but praying for others. And is it possible that revival is delayed because we're too preoccupied praying for ourselves and not for others? Not praying that God would intercede in my new neighbor's life who, as far as I can tell (laughs) from the language I've heard from the front porch, probably not a believer. Maybe I'm wrong and they just need Jesus to get a hold of their mouth, but... The third value is a longing for God. A longing for God. The idea present here is the search for something important, something valuable. God is telling us that we've lost our appetite for him. That we must be consumed with desiring him. Sometimes, church, I'm worried that we're so eager for the next spiritual high, the next spiritual rush, that we miss God himself in the process. He wants us to long for him, not the next ah, moment. And finally, the, the fourth value is repentance. The word that the chronicler used here is the most common word for repentance in the Old Testament. It means to turn, to change directions, to turn around. We must fervently and habitually embrace a personal and corporate hatred of sin while we seek to lovingly express the righteousness that we've been given by grace. And ultimately what we find out is this, when we embrace these four values of humility and prayer and longing for God and repentance, what we find out is that an appeal to the grace of God is the only hope this nation has. And that was true for Solomon and it's true for us. Listen, do not put your hope in Republicans or Democrats. They cannot save you. Do not put your hope in doctors or scientists. They cannot save you. Do not put your hope in military might or economic prowess. It cannot save you. Do not put your hope in past virtues or future progress. It cannot save you. Instead, bend your heart to the will of God. Ask God to pour out his spirit in a mighty way on those you know. Diligently seek to know God through worship and word. Turn from your sin and put your hope in Jesus because he's the only hope our nation has. That's how you heal a nation. I'm going to do something different today to end our message. I want to lead you in a time of prayer for our country. When you came in, you were handed an American flag. The purpose of this today, here, (laughs) is to serve as a a physical, tactile reminder. Is that the right word? Um, (laughs) It's something that you can focus. It's a focal point for your prayers. You, You were handed this so that as we pray, Maybe you'll, maybe you'll want to pray for all 50 states. Maybe you remember the song from grade school. <laughs> Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Connecticut, da-da-da. Right? Maybe you'll want to thank God for those whose blood was shed to secure our liberties, represented by the red stripes. The 13 original colonies, This is a focal point for you today. 
So the band is gonna play quietly while we pray. And I'm gonna ask you to take whatever posture is best for you as you pray. For a lot of you, that may be to remain seated. You may want to turn around and kneel, hit your knees. You, you may want to stand and raise your hands and pray that way. I, just whatever works for you, okay? We're gonna spend some time praying for our country. And I, and I wanna use the mode that was given us in today's text. So close your eyes, bow your heads or whatever, take whatever posture you want. Let's pray. Would you, in humility, acknowledge your own brokenness and that of our country? of your nation repent of them today turn your back on them Jesus, our nation is broken. And so we have no recourse but to fall into your loving hands and ask you to do with us as you wish. Jesus, we would be so bold as to ask for healing. We should love to have you restore us and help us live out the words written in the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights, not because they're on the same level as your word, though they are derived from the principles in it. Help us, Jesus, long for you more than we long for the 
enjoyment of our freedoms or the assertion of our rights, Jesus. Help us long for you. In a dry and thirsty land, you are the water of life. Let our longing for you overflow to the culture around us. We trust in the grace and forgiveness given us at the cross. Jesus, we turn our back on our sin. We have too often called evil good and good evil in this nation. We have permitted the oppression and slaughter of the innocents for the sake of our own convenience and power. We turn our back on that Jesus. We repudiate it utterly. And in our longing for you, we express a desire to be your people, to live each day in the grace and forgiveness that you have given us and the freedom that you gave us when you died in our place for our sins on the cross and rose again. Thank you for washing away our sin. We love you. We lift up our country to you now, Jesus, and pray that you might use it in a mighty way around the world to advance your gospel. And if it be your will, freedom, peace, and safety for the rest of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I know it's possible that some of you might not yet be done doing business with God. And so we're gonna stand and sing an invitation song. If you need to keep praying following this um, format, you're welcome to do that. Uh, If you have a decision to make, if you want to be baptized or want to place membership, you can come forward as we sing. If you want someone to pray with you, we'd be happy to do that too. I'm gonna ask you to stand with me and we're gonna sing together and you respond as God leads you today.